The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Testament, there is um, taking a short route or a route around the problem of crossing culture. Uh, they do it by yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. And so Padilla writes uh, a section on this whole matter of the conflict of homogeneity and heterogeneity. And you see that the Holy Spirit is the most significant aspect of our understanding on how to cross culture. I think that's important for a Latin American to say that, who understands contextualization, who is on the forefront of contextualization, is now speaking about uh, theology and how important uh, the study of the Holy Spirit is crucial to this process of crossing barriers that we thought we couldn't cross before. And here we notice also that in verse 18, as the Holy Spirit came upon these folks and the explanation given by Peter... And in verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections. It was like kind of an instant conclusion. I like that. I, I like the idea that they probably saw in Peter also a man that was changed. That's why I'm looking at where he's the same and where he's different. And uh, uh, He's changed, and there is uh, no objection, but the excitement also is that there was a celebration that occurred right immediately after that. And we have been restricted from celebrating because I think we have been restricted in many ways from exchanging and crossing over to places we thought we could never cross over. In this class, we have such a good mixture. And I would say it's wonderful to celebrate the, uh, the way the Lord has put us together providentially. You know, male, female. Um, there are no distinctions between us here in this room. Uh, we all come from a different part of the world. And yet, very significant to what God is doing. We join together in a class on cross-culture, and we, we have to come back to the same basics. And so there were no objection, and we see how this was important to the process of evangel evangelization, but in the next section, in verse 19 and on, we find the same story happening. And those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. And then we find that some of them, however, men from Cyprus, someone took this step uh, further than where they were going, which was to Jews only, uh, and uh, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And then we see the process here. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So there was a uh, kind of an evangelistic explosion that took place, and there was growth. Now, news of this, verse 22, reached the heirs of the church in Jerusalem. Again, you go back to your denomination, and they sent 
bottom of it. Now, what's happening is you've got this charismatic movement, they're growing rapidly, and they're concerned whether there's going to be any discipleship going on. So what are they all saved? You know? Let's find out if it's legitimate or not. You know, that's the way we feel about any kind of explosion like that, where people get saved, we think, well, it's just some kind of an experience, an emotion. Couldn't be God, could it? When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Again, you have this conversion experience, but you have a man, again, walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's crucial. He might have come back and said, this is just a lot of... Uh, uh, numerical growth. There is nothing qualitative about this. <laughs> Not only that, there doesn't seem to be any pastor here. You know, but he wasn't uh, he wasn't arrogant. And Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul because he's concerned about mentoring and discipleship. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. A wonderful story to see how someone decided to cross over and begin to speak to Greeks also. And it's, and it's really important that we look at some of these things. Um, your, your basic uh, understanding is that each church should have at least one paid pastor to guide the Christians on the basis of the Korean experience. Okay. How about the others of you that put true? Abraham, uh, you have fruit there. You have yes. reasons for that. Yes. These, these are the folks that are looking for employment. <laughs> <laughs> this has to be universal. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, one thing that I, I realize is that uh, it's good. I don't have any uh, Bible uh, backing, but it's good to have a paid pastor because he will actually concentrate on the members. Yeah, uh, because if you don't have a paid pastor in the church, you know, things go mm-hmm. out of hand. And, okay. Uh, yeah. You, and again, you're coming out of your experience over yeah, against yeah. what the Bible says. Yeah. But your sense of it is that there must be one paid pastor. Yeah. Okay, again, this is the distinction between Christianity and our culture, and the question begins with the Bible says, and then we need to answer true and false. The second question is, the most important job of your church is to win converts, true or false? The Bible says that the most important job of your church is to win converts. Now, all our two-thirds world people put through enough. No, okay, we have a good news here. Why? What is your conclude? Why your conclusions? Why is it true? I think because if you look at the Bible, Christ does command us to win converts and also the, the church, the other purpose of the church is to have worship, you know, to honor God and to worship God. But then we, as we turn to Acts chapter 6, you know, mm-hmm. the, the apostles say our, we should preach and pray, you know. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the texts, you know, which shows that the preaching is one of, preaching and to win converts is one of the most, or the most okay. Okay, anyone else put true? Anyone yeah. put true? Uh, yes. Any others? I, I believe that, uh, that is the most important job because when we think about a great commission, okay. Jesus Christ says that we should go and preach and then we then in the Congress and then baptize. So I think. Okay. What is the 
the other response? Why the other response? Uh, that it's not the most important job of your church. Well, when you say most important, you mean uh, it, you're setting up a priority list on which this is number one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a definite article as well. It's not saying you know. Yeah, the one most important. Yeah. Um, and in that case, my question would come up: What about the scenario in which you're striving to reach out, but converts aren't coming? Mm-hmm. Um, is the church then a failure? No. The church is to be faithful first. And out of that faithfulness flows the, flows the desire to be converts. Okay, the, the point of it is not whether or not there is truth. The point of it is not is whether or not the major and most important task is for us to evangelize. So that uh, the question is not that it determines, that truth determines whether we've been faithful or unfaithful. Point of it is that we've done the task of evangelism as a priority of the church. I matched uh, a little bit with the word convert. I mean, yeah. it's kind of written spelled with man. I'd rather see the word sure. disciples. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Anybody else have something? Yeah. I take it convert as disciple in this context. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Any of the other theologians? <laughs> <laughs> Not foster like that. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would see that that is just being a, I mean, the most important job is to win converts is that just being part of the overall job of the church so I, I think I would say no that's too narrow okay what would you say instead of that um, what's, the, what's the broader or general term glorify God to be the body of Christ in the world which, because that would include winning comments, that would also include building up those who are in the church already, or those who have become converts. Mm-hmm. The converts just kind of leaves everybody at the beginning stage. It's a terrible definition in some ways for evangelism, but when they did this, their answer was to be true. The question is that the people that were giving it at the time were Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. So here we have a whole different thing. We have also a conditioning in within the denomination that this is, and, and the matter of implying that winning converts speaks that they have they there has to be conversions. You know that you have to have conversion uh, experiences occur, um, and I think the definition is just very poor. But again, their thinking would be yes, and uh, they they think they're being um, uh, uh, honest to the word of God. And so, uh, you know, you have this double kind of a thing. And they would promote it as, as it is stated in number two. Three, the midweek prayer meeting is an essential element of church life. Of course, that's radically changed. What did you put down? A lot of you folks put true down. I put true. I put true. Yeah, again, I, did you put true? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Americans again are way out of line. Would you give me your your position on that? What do you think? Yeah, the midweek uh, prayer meeting. The Bible says that the midweek prayer meeting is an essential element of church life. Yeah. Um, this is what I see during the weekdays as you go out. You just come to church on Sundays, and then you don't have any meetings again. You know because of the people busy. Yeah, and so midweek prayer also brings the whole congregation to have a fellowship. Okay, you're dealing with practical, yeah. practical terms over against yeah. biblical 
terms yeah. in some ways. But yet, yeah, prayer, of course, is yeah. central. But, you know, it shouldn't be in the midweek. Is the Bible teaching us that we must have it in the, on a Wednesday? Any, anyone else? Yeah. Uh, in fact, our, our church has everything in midweek. So, so naturally, uh, it's a response that we put through. <laughs> but also, I'm thinking of uh, the Bible, especially the New Testament, uh, during Acts. So they have, yeah. in fact, a prayer meeting every day. So, if just midweek prayer is just part of the day, like the week. Part so, of the week. So they were praying every day and midweek was part of that. Yeah. <laughs> now they would have said no to that, but you're looking at it from a different perspective. Anybody yeah. else that has some keen ideas on this? Again, I'm reading this through the tradition. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. And to say, this is it, you know what I mean? This is this, this, where this is coming from, so... I'm not against with <laughs> prayer meeting salvation. Uh, sure. Their answer is false to it only because they felt that we didn't, the Bible doesn't teach specifically Wednesday. But uh, let's look at number nine for a moment. Um, uh, drinking alcoholic beverages is a basis for church discipline. Now, how do you think they would look at this? The Bible says that uh, drinking alcoholic beverage beverages is a basis for church discipline. The ones so giving the tests are coming from Southern Baptists. Baptist. Well, that's what they're reading the Bible. I know. Timothy should have gotten some food. What was your answer on that one? What was number nine? Well, how many of you put true? Would you rate me? How many put true that drinking alcoholic beverages is basis for church discipline? No one. Oh, we've got a problem. I didn't think there was anything wrong. Excuse me? It has meditated. Yes, but the point of so your 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 view is the Bible does not teach it. How about the number eight? A Christian is obligated to give ten percent of his income to his local church. Yeah. Uh, true or false on that? Thousand schools, church. I said true. Okay. That's just false. How many says uh, false on that one? One, two, three, four. Four or five of you. Five against three. What was your read of the false again? Uh, I think fighting is is is, uh, is a is a teaching from the Bible, but to, we need to really get to our language. That's my reservation. We need to keep ten percent. That's true. I don't think ten percent is enough. <coughs> At least enough. Uh, <laughs> that's that's my point. It's issue of okay. sacrificially. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the point yeah. they're getting at is the whole principle of the tithe. Yeah. Which, you know. I, I've got a question. Uh, yeah, again, we've got some difficulties here. And the interesting thing is when the missionaries gave us out, they were they were on the same place. They would say exactly, yes, tithing is, must give it to a lot. The Bible teaches that. Uh, some others would say, well, let's look further than the Old Testament idea of tithing. Let's go in. Tithing is certainly a place to begin giving, but it must go into New Testament teaching about giving according to or giving sacrificially, if you want to use that word. But it was further than that. And uh, again, they would have answered uh, true to that. That it's uh, Bible teaching. You've done a lot of pastoring in the city, and you have someone who comes to the Lord who's living on a very minimal income. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're managing to spend it just either not make ends meet or just barely make ends meet. Mm-hmm. How do you advise them at that point? I mean, it's it's essential that Christians give, but especially, you know, if you, gra- you set up graduated steps and say, well, let's try to work towards a tithe, and maybe this year you'll give 2%. Yeah. 
Um, let me just uh, say something because it's a very interest, interesting phenomenon. Study was done on the giving in Protestants, including the Pentecostal Church. The highest giving was done by the church that was poor, uh, the Pentecostal yeah. Church. The highest giving, they were giving sacrificially. They were the ones that were giving according to way beyond their title. And they were the church of the poor. They're the welfare recipients that are attending church. They're the ones that have single parents and so forth. So it's very interesting that the Pentecostal church was done, the study was done by someone Vedansis from Northeastern University, a black Christian, uh, to look at these issues and found that the Pentecostal church was the highest given church per person. Well, how do you handle an issue like, it's related, but um, I'm reading off their mother. Yeah. And like someone like that woman who is also receiving a lot of income illegally. <laughs> what do you, I mean, obviously, well, you, like, how do you, what do you do with that kind of situation when the person tithing? I mean, we will, they tithe we will their own with that. Uh, I think it's due next week, is it? Or yeah. yeah. We will cover that, some of those issues, and also you have their Margaret case study next week, and I think we'll try to cover both of them and talk about some of the so actual questions and how to reach <laughs> over in some ways, you know what I mean? Um, it's so much of the baggage that I just automatically carry with me, I'm not even thinking about it, that until I'm confronted with something that's different, I'm not able to say, oh, why is this different? I think the point of it will be, is it not why is it different, but why aren't you like me? That's the problem. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're, you're saying, why, why are <laughs> My motives are so pure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I would love to see that here on Earth, but I think what the response will primarily be is, why aren't you thinking like I am thinking? Why aren't you behaving like I am behaving? 
uh, is there something wrong with you? You're fallen, and I'm in some ways implying I am not. So you, you're nearly imposing your culture on other people, thinking that you don't, you're, you're super cultural. You're beyond culture. You know, everyone should be like you. And this is a trapping. And so the anthropologist, the Christian anthropologist, is calling us to say, first of all, because of that dilemma that you just indicated, that I'm coming in with baggage, I've got to understand who I am. There is a phenomena about understanding who you are in that sense that really liberates you to be much more open to other cultures. It's like you're not a cultural being for some reason. You think you're not a cultural being. When we talk of the word ethnic, who are the ethnics, you know, we often think about everyone but yourself. Well, they're the Asians in our, in our community on campus. There are uh, the Afro-Americans. There are those that come from Africa that are here and so forth. But uh, that's it. You're not at all. In some ways, you're beyond that. And you would think, I said, no, you're not. You have, there is ethnicity involved in your, in your development. And what is it? And so I think he's making a good case for it. I think we should try to do some of that. I would encourage you, uh, the next time you have an opportunity of looking uh, maybe into that, you know, those pictures of the past or talking with parents or so, is to begin understanding a little bit more of your culture. Because you do bring a great deal of baggage, as you were saying, Bill. You bring a great deal of baggage that, are, that, that is imposed. Uh, you impose that on other people. You know, I, uh, this whole matter of uh, ethnocentrism, where your superiority, uh, and you like to be humble about, but you do present um, uh, ethnocentrism into a situation and make yourself a superior. Everyone wants to be like you. Um, you know, and I think that that's sinful to do that. Okay, the other one, the second point that he mentions is what? Remember, everyone has a culture. Okay. Which, is, which is the runoff of this, understanding your own culture. He indicates that it's, uh, that everyone has a culture. And there isn't any purity of the culture where we think that I am only Hispanic and I indicated to you that there was mixture. There is no kind of purity of culture. You will find, and that's why some folks begin to but wait a minute, I am more than English, I also have this and this and this. Now that's right, we all do. To some degree, if you look back, it's going to be uh, some other uh, mixture of culture in our... And, uh, and I think that's important to, to understand. The question for us in North America and the United States is that we're moving from one circle to another uh, in the economic strata, therefore, when we come to that middle-class dimension, we often think, especially Anglos, think that we're, we don't have any culture. That's one of the signs for me that there is something has moved social uh, in the social economic class. Where I'll, I will find the poor white maybe in Kensington or the Irish community in New York City that will be able to say, I come from the county of Maine or I come from this part of Ireland. I, and yet they've never seen it. They, that they have a cultural identity, and their food and their diet is pretty much like it might be in that other country. You see, they're very proud of being... Uh, uh, St. Patty's becomes a, a very important aspect to their whole uh, development. So, so uh, all of these pieces are there, and I think uh, the social economic uh, movement away from uh, your culture, uh, except unless you're black, because primarily black, because in some ways it, the color never lets you remove yourself. We had a discussion on that yesterday with the two people that uh, you were in my class, with the two folks that came out of the university and uh, the black and the white uh, on prime time 
um, where the black was, um, even though he was disqualified or more so, he was not permitted to, to uh, be accepted in any circles. So everyone has a culture, and uh, we've got to look at that and remember that. I hope that it becomes significant to you, especially if you think that you're something outside of that. The third one is what? Uh, the third one uh, was basically that he, he uh, states that no one can divorce themselves from their own culture. You can't divorce yourself from your culture. The only exception that I make to that is that there is a, an attempt psychologically, and the book on Hunter of Memory by Richard Rodriguez, he makes a real effort to move away from his culture, psychologically. To move away. The reality of it is that he finds down the road in the second book that he can't run away from it. He can't remove himself from it. And so he comes back to recognize that he is Mexican-American and so forth. But there is an attempt to make this. Now, what are the first things that we notice, coming again back to the models that Quas uh, presents to us, um, what... Uh, what's the first thing that we notice when we come into a culture? What are, what are the things that first strike us? Food. Hmm? Food. Clothing. Roles families are usually... If you were to walk uh, down North Philly uh, trying to... What would be some of the things that would hit you immediately? Or if you were to walk down this area, Glenside, I haven't been in Glenside very much, but Pat Sticks. <laughs> what do you make out of that in North Philadelphia then? What are the first things that really, you know, you you walk down North Philly and you say to yourself, I don't ever want to live here. Or something like that. I think that we can see the difference in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. the, uh, like, when compare the neighborhood here in uh, Glenside, it's very clean and neat. No? Uh -huh. Flowers planted around the houses. But you go down to Germantown, you see every, you know, trash here and there. You know, uh, a lot of this, you know, mm -hmm. untidy <laughs> streets, sceneries. You see. You know, Burned out, uh, see people also, uh, the way they dress, the way they, they talk, especially uh, the blacks, they talk quite loud to one another. You can listen. It's very loud? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and sometimes they sing along with music, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the black music, uh -huh. they dance along a bit. They dance publicly out. Yeah, yeah. They bring along a small. Uh, oh, what? Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me, what is your conclusion when you see that that behavior? Uh, you come to conclusion. I felt a bit strange at first, and then I, after a few months, I get used to it. I say, oh, this the way of life. So, but is it negative, positive? Is there? Do you put? Be honest now. Do you put uh, something? Do you attach a value system to it? And you're trying to yes. sleep at night. <laughs> it's very negative. <laughs> yeah, at first I felt a bit uh, negative about that. Especially, I, I felt being confronted, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, my, 
my my privacy is interrupted in the sense that they would talk so loud even on the street. My apartment is so near the street. I cannot uh, sometimes uh, concentrate on what I'm doing because the music so loud, they talk so loud, and sometimes I peep through the window and see the way they walk, they dance along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, there is kind of a negative attachment to a variety of things that we're not familiar with. Uh, some of this would come, and of course, depending on the social economic class, because of the middle class Afro-Americans, they may feel the same way about certain things. Others may say, ah, I finally got home. I see, hear the music. If I go down to North Philadelphia and I hear the, the Spanish music coming from the stores, uh, very loud, uh, if I smell the, the food that's coming from the stores, if I see the commotion of the people, the colors that they use, and all of the rest, I feel very comfortable. I feel I'm at home. I feel safe. For others coming into that community and see the gathering of people, they say, danger, uh, unruliness, they're not conservative, they're too loud. Negative connotations are placed there. The first thing that we see here, and that's, that's why you have to be careful, where that's exactly where we stay. With that little circle is exactly where we normally stay. We see the behavior when we move into a community, and that's the end of it. There isn't anything further for us. We come to conclusions, um, and we and, and we haven't gone any further than really searching out what the rest of it means. That's my fear. Uh, and we're willing to speak about it openly in ways that make strategy come by. You'll read it in Dear Margaret. You'll, you will take this area and say, well, uh, here's what I think has happened. That's a real uh, difficult community and so on and on. This gathering of young men on the streets, this is what it means. You see uh, graffiti, this is what it means, etc. Uh, you see kids that are going to play all day long and you say, this is the conclusion that I make well, that's the tendency that we have, you see. You have a great opportunity going, going further, probably into an E3 dimension where you're really learning how, uh, in a broader sense, a new culture in Germantown area. And Germantown may be different than the, uh, the Afro-American in South and West Philadelphia to some degree. They may be different. I have a question about how to approach that then. Like, you, know, you have the Hudson-Taylor model who basically... When he stepped into that culture after observing it for a while, he just totally took it all to himself and became just like that. How, how do you think that appears to a community when, you, you know, say I was to learn Spanish and change the way I dressed and listen, change the music I listened to, is that appear, would that appear to them to be a genuine effort or would that appear to them to be like a play actor? I think in some cases it would. I think there would be a place where you change, but you don't even realize you change in your clothing and your value system. Um, so there may be some of that. Uh, but I think it, it appears very paternalistic at times yeah. when we make those kinds of moves. I just believe that you make those gradual things that you find yourself changing. When my kids grew up in Bartram Village, when they left, we didn't realize this. Because we grew up, we were the only Hispanics. It was projects that were nearly all black. Um, they didn't know Puerto Ricans, and yet, you know, that's it. that was an impossibility for us. We came out of New York, we have a million and a half, or a million two hundred thousand, and so you come out of New York, everyone knows what a Puerto Rican is. Here in this community, they didn't know what Puerto Ricans were. Southwest Philadelphia. And, uh, and we were there for five years. My daughter and my son both had a very heavy accent, Afro-American accent. We didn't realize 
until we got to Chicago and heard my daughter speaking and said, this is really different. She picked it up. My daughter Debbie and my son Joe, so they picked it up. Uh, my, my point in this, please, and t- try to take it as seriously as you possibly can in the stages, that I find too often that we're willing to make conclusions and, and kind of say this is what it means without going any further than what we've just seen, the behavior. Uh, as I mentioned, you come to conclusions very naturally because it rubs you the wrong way, it rubs you in a certain direction, that you come to conclusions. And uh, I would recommend, especially as Christians, that maybe the book Welfare Mother also caused some decisions for you to make. I have a question. About yes. House. Because I think in the 19th century and now present day, they have that different definition about culture. They think of culture in terms of degree of, of, of civilization. Mm. Mm. But now we look at the culture more positively. But as you think of the example given like how you dump your rubbish, uh, do we really consider as part of the broader sense of culture? Now in, in East Malaysia is facing one of the problems like the, what they call the primitive culture, people still living a very remote way of life. and. Um, because of modern civilization is going to get it. But some people are uh, criticizing, are we going to make them to be uh, westernized? If we are going to make them westernized, we are saying that western culture is more advanced, you know. Those people will be, will be become extinct in the culture. But uh, how are we going to say that if we really look at people the way they dump the rubbish, unhygienic way, do we refer that as also the culture? Uh, you, and I'm trying to catch what you're yeah. saying. For example, if we go to the Philadelphia, uh, some, some people, because of poverty, they have not been educated as to how they should take care of their rubbish, you know, take care of their rubbish and trash. And then we think of that is part of their culture. Can, can I illustrate this? When I get out of the car, it cuts. It smells. It just stinks. And, and what you're saying is, do I associate that stink with those people? Yeah. You know, yeah. Do, do I do I down? You know, I struggle with that. Am I going to, to well, salute them because? Of well, precisely what I'm saying that you're making decisions that are not really their cultural situation. You're coming to conclusions out of conditions that have been imposed on them. So you've got graffiti on the walls and things like that. You've imposed that on them. You nearly come to the conclusions that you say all Hispanics are horrible people. You're the one that makes that decision. You see, you haven't investigated further enough to, to look at it so that, or he may say the food is that way. Well, we would say the same thing in Korean. You know, because our diet is so different and we all of a sudden see what's delicious to them and so forth, no. we might come to our own conclusions on that. But I think that you also have to remember there is enculturation taking place. <laughs> there is also an adjustment that has been taking no, place. I, I, what I say is that I, I think that the way they dump the rubbish is because they have not been educated, because they are poor, you know, they have no, no money probably, probably to buy the... the you see, again, that's a, that's a conclusion that he's saying is because of that, economics and education, those two things. And I think he would have to say further even more than that, although those two things are important. I would want him to go further than that, understand the causality of that, that issue. Uh, for me, uh, this point I can bring up. My neighbor, he is a she's a Irish woman, so she always concerned about the cleanliness around the, the, the street, mm-hmm. in our corner. 
So you put a, 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 a what the trash container, cash cards in the corner there, and he purposely pick up all the trash around and then put into that trash container. Well, what he what you what she really wants is uh, to make uh, some sort of example, <coughs> showing the kids around there. If you the empty can, you should throw inside the, the trash container. But since that nobody bothered, <coughs> they continue to throw the, anywhere. the can anywhere. Even they broke the, the bottle along the street. So he she was so frustrated and she scolded children, and that didn't improve the situation neither. So even getting worse. I, I guess that you know that we're we're thinking cross culturally. We we just if there's anything that we can learn from this is that you're going to make some decisions, some conclusions uh, quickly, uh, without discovering that the other parts is why are they making those decisions? Uh, what is why are they making those choices? What's happening? Uh, people would come from the island and uh, say, boy, the, the Hispanics here are so different than over there in New York City or in Philadelphia. You know, oh, they're, they're terrible out there in Philadelphia, and they're so different on the island, so wonderful, so friendly, so et cetera, et cetera. You know, and uh, they make that, you see, because we've had to make that survival adjustment to everything. Imagine that we're people in a climate completely different, and we have to make those adjustments. And on and on you go, and you say, how do we survive in such a culture? How do we make it? And so there is all of this, and you've got to see that, again, culture is changing. There are things that are occurring. Uh, but you've got to go further than where, what's the behavior. You've got to go on. Why are they making those choices? What's going on in this? And he's saying the economic situation is putting a stress on this culture, and also the educational system is doing something here. And then, of course, the third area is still, you're investigating, you're going further than that, and you're looking at uh, their, their whole area of belief system. Underlying some of this, you find their beliefs, that what is true to them. You've got to go further in your investigation. And, and so these are some of the things that I think help you. And then finally, you're looking at their worldview, how they perceive life. What is real? What is their worldview? Now, most of us, because we're so, um, how can I put it, so uh, willing to say that everyone must be like us and have our system of operation, that we don't bother to go as far as this. And my concern is that we learn how to sit at the foot of the culture. Dr. Buswell at Wheaton College, uh, anthropologist, uh, would say you've got to sit at the foot of the culture and that takes time to learn a people. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to commit yourself to really sit at the foot of the culture, seeing, hearing, playing, being part of, without coming to these major conclusions to say to you, I'm going to minister here, but I hate it. <laughs> or I'm going to minister here as long as they begin to take on my form of life. Because my life is Christian. You don't believe that you're a cultural being. That you don't have any cultural values and traits. So I think this is important. This is where the enrichment comes for us. And that's where I think some of the complications happen on campus. Between the students. Uh, you know, there is nearly a kind of a stratum of of uh, elevation of what is the best culture on campus and where is it, what's the lowest one. 
Mm. I would love to, now that would be an interesting research project, <laughs> see how we perceive each other and who's the best of all here. The best minister college is. You know, and, it, uh, and all these kinds of, of questions that may may come out of it. Uh, uh, this is a real problem for me. Um, here we are as Christians and we have our own genius groupings probably during fellowship time um, in a lunchroom and it happens on every campus where you will find the Asian community, the Hispanic community sit at different tables hmm. and so on. Everyone has their homogeneity going on. Um, here we have an opportunity of really learning and it's difficult. It is difficult. Um, it's interesting that in our denomination they will say that the most happiest folks around us are the Hispanic community. Especially the Cubans. They're so happy. They've been here 20 years. And the reality is that they will not confront and offend anyone. But they're very dissatisfied. They're so unhappy. But they do not do that with authority figures. So they, the authority figures never hear from them these issues that are going on. It's just like my wife when she came from Puerto Rico. She came to... Um, to New York City, and uh, uh, the teachers would say, you're, um, you're arrogant, look into my eyes, and, and when you talk to me, look up to me. Well, she learned in Puerto Rico, you never look up, you act ashamed, and you bring your head down. Mm -hmm. So that's the way she would always do it. And out of that, she was placed in these categories that they gave, because she was, again, they thought it would be pathological. She was an A student in Puerto Rico when she came here because she didn't know the language. Uh, she was put into a, a learning disability class, yeah. LD class, with kids they could. They just left her there. You know, and uh, that's why today she functions in all the schools. She volunteers, the literacy programs and all that because she's committed to programs that will help children that come from another country. So they placed her in a learning disability class or emotionally disturbed class because of those kinds of barriers. These are the kinds of issues. Of course, we've grown up somewhat, I think. But basically, sometimes I think we're very backward even in our settings here. This is an important aspect. Believe me, I would have to learn Hispanics over again in Philadelphia, uh, the Afro-American community. Uh, it's important that we sit at the Philadelphia culture before we start changing our guard. A young man in the projects buys a pair of sneakers that cost $120. Immediately you come to the conclusion you say uh, a lot of negative things. You don't understand why that choice was made. How important. You may say, why didn't they do this or this or this instead of spending? Why didn't they just get Converse kids, kids uh, uh, sneakers for $13, $14? Uh, you will never, we, we need to investigate. You need to find further before you come to I think this is important. I want to go into an area that about uh, understanding culture further and how we do cross-cultural ministry in our next hour. So please uh, take a cup of coffee somewhere. Uh, for an example, there is a, a short story here, if I can find it again. Yes, come on. I don't usually want it. Um, let me read it to you because it will deal with the time event. You're a missionary, and you've got to deal with this question, this tension about time. The building of the Yap Evangelical Church was, that's YAP, was used for two services, each Sunday morning. A Polan, P-A-L-A-U-A-N, language service began at half past eight, and a Yapi service followed at 11. You've got those two. 
On one particular Sunday, the senior pastor and head of the church of Palau had come to the Yap to speak to the local Pauline car- uh, Polan congregation. Because of the special nature of the service, he was not finished when it came time for the other service to begin at 11. A dear German sister, veteran of 30 years, in Yap and Palau, bust, bustled around impatiently at the bottom of the hill until she could contain herself no longer. Abruptly, she ordered a Yapese girl to go up and ring the bell. Needless to say, the Polan pastor who was waiting was deeply embarrassed. He quickly closed his sermon and Polan congregation rushed out of the church. When the Yapis pastor realized what had happened, he was mortified and apologized to the pastor and people as they came out. Then during the Yapis service, he publicly rebuked the sister in a very gentle way, saying, We Yapis don't care when the service begins. We are happy to wait until the Polan brothers are finished. For us, time doesn't matter. We just want our brothers to enjoy their fellowship here in our church. A half hour was not important to the people of the congregation. They would have waited two hours without feeling imposed upon or becoming angry. Americans and Germans, on the contrary, have a very short time fuse and experience anxiety when there is a delay of five or more minutes. And this is coming from Lingenfeld's book. Case study after case study, you see, some of this is true. Interesting enough, we found that even with people, uh, we had an American that was born in, in the, the middle and uh, in, in central USA, married to a Mexican-American. She had picked up qualities of time. She was more impatient than he was in our the things that you're filling out now. Uh, we discussed that in class, and one of the things that happened was that she adjusted to the culture found that she had to control the family because he was so late to meetings, etc., and she didn't want him to look bad in this context. So here's a Mexican-American that has a much more broader look of time, is not as impatient, had to adjust. And so that her timing came out on this questionnaire to show that she was much more impatient than he was. Uh, so we found interesting things about how two people are going to work in a culture as well. So as you do this, please... Uh, uh, you don't have to pull it out, of course. It's just something that I thought may help our discussion or may help you. You want my wife to evaluate me on this or herself? She could just fill out the question for herself. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I evaluate me and no, I'll be interested in I will give you that maybe you're very time-oriented and she's very event-oriented. And to her, it's the events over against the time issue. So uh, I'll give you some of that. Let me go on with this, trying to do this matter of definition, which is a difficult one for us. Uh, but I think it's important. Uh, we're looking, we're going to look at ways of, uh, in which we can evangelize people in a cross-cultural setting. But I'd like to try to break down the definition of culture for us. Okay? Let's begin uh, with this matter that number one is that culture is dynamic. Number one, culture is dynamic. We've indicated some of that in our discussion throughout the class period. Um, underneath that A, is culture is in constant motion because people are interacting with one another. Culture is in, a, in constant motion because people are constantly interacting with one another. 
See, culture is changing, and uh, and some of these we will look at later. But basically, what we're looking at is dynamic because people are involved. We often think that culture is separated in some ways, but that's the second part. B is that culture does not exist apart from people, and people are constantly in communication. Therefore, you find this dynamic uh, going on, this constant dynamic of change occurring. People are communicating with each other. Culture is not static. Culture is dynamic. It's moving and changing, and um, it's what one uh, philosophy uh, one. A person, uh, he's really an anthropologist, but or Dega said that basically, uh, I am me and my circumstances. You know, everything that happens around me, all my interactions, that's who I am, and that's who you are. And um, and so we see cultures being dynamic, and I think that's why you're always in touch with it. In some ways, the social sciences have to be a little bit more important to us than they have been in the past. I don't know how much you enjoy understanding other people, but you know that's an important aspect. I think of the cultural mandate, the mission mandate. Secondly, culture is process. Now, I don't know. For some of you, it may be very, very difficult. But um, is there anything that you know of that has been passed down to you uh, that you're doing today because it's something part of uh, the past? Can you mention something, Jen? Um, just my attitude toward like cleanliness in the house and like things being neat and the way the kitchen's arranged and that kind of stuff. I it comes exactly from my mom. Mm-hmm. And it's like the things that bug me, things that basically bugged my mom, and now they bug me. Okay, that's the, the so, behavior is that. And what, bugged her mother. What's the importance behind it? What means does that have? Well, the old. Uh, Pennsylvania Dutch axiom that cleanliness is next to godliness. Somehow there's like, if you're not clean and neat, it's almost morally wrong. Mm, okay, it has a moral attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you go back deep, deep, if you go down deep enough, it does. Okay, um, and are you carrying that uh, to the next generation? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I hope not. At least the meaning of it. Maybe you close down my bar if you like. <laughs> Okay, this, anyone else that has anything that you can remember that really is something passed down that comes from your culture um, that, you're, uh, that you understand as a cultural trait? Okay, don't, don't try. Um, yes. uh, in our culture, I we don't use uh, the left hand uh, in giving something to anybody. Okay. It, it doesn't show the sign of respect. Ah, it's a, uh, you must always use your right hand in uh, giving things to people. So okay. it's really when you give anything to your parents with the left hand, it's, it seems that maybe you are snobbing them or you know you don't respect. Okay. So that's what the Chinese have to use two hands. It's interesting because uh, the, the part that maybe I'm not sure, but I know that in the in the urban community to shake hands, and maybe in every every community, but to to shake hands with your left hand is disrespectful. And you, so if you're going like this, you really immediately shake with your right hand. Especially what, what, what time the mayor of my town came to my house? I was just a little boy and I shook my left hand. Boy, did I get reamed for that. <laughs> never forgot it. I never forgot. I never shook my left hand again. Left hand here, we have, we're really uh, 
biased against you being left-handed. But I, we had a promotion Sunday this Sunday, and I noticed which children shook with their left hand and which ones mm-hmm. shook with their right <laughs> This matter of uh, culture is process, and uh, what I want you to understand out of here is that human systems, human systems are being symbolically communicated. Especially speech. Human systems are symbolically communicated, especially speech. And uh, underneath that as well, underneath the culture's process, there's another piece of it that we've talked about in class and that enculturation goes from one generation to another, throughout another generation. Uh, so we're passing down from one generation to the other. If you mention enculturation, you begin really learning the culture from, uh, you, from your parents as a child, and then go to the community. We have a thing where, um, and I try to maintain some of these things, by the way, because purposely, deliberately. We, we can get a mixer, and when we make our food, we use a lot of different uh, elements. We have to buy them at the store before you make beans or rice or chicken or anything. We call it sofrito, and um, we normally would do it with a bilong. You, you, use, you do it by hand. And my mother did it that way, and my wife's mother did it that way, and they would just smash all the things down, and, and that belong, that wouldn't, uh, I'm trying to think there's a word for it, in English I can't quite remember what it is, but it's like uh, when you mix things in pharmacy, they use one of those things. Well, it's a big pestle. Well, what we have then is, is that it would be passed down to the first child to taste. They would take a little bit of the rice that was finished, now that has a delicious smell and taste to it, and they put a little bit, then the first daughter or the son would taste it. And it would be passed down. Now the daughter eventually, when she gets married, she gets alone, and she does the same thing. So we do it. Now she, my wife can put it into one of the mixers, get it done quickly. And easy. <laughs> now you have that toss-up between passing down, and of course we do a little bit of both. But the point, it was so important for our children, and there was so much uh, excitement because they were in touch with part of the culture. And they love doing that, but they grew up. And uh, some of that is, is part of it, passing down. But we do it deliberately because we know that this matter of assimilation, losing in touch with your culture, and as Tony Brown would say, if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. There's a sense of destiny involved with your roots. And of course, that's a little bit much, but I think there's some truth to it. And I feel, uh, I feel it's an important piece. But culture is, is in process. And uh, thirdly, Culture is a context for behavior and values, which is what we've been talking about on the, on the overhead. Culture is a context for behavior and values. Culture is like a blueprint, if you want to put it in some simple terms, a guide. Now, I must say this to you, because I think it's important. We discussed it in our evening class on Tuesday nights with the Afro-American community. But here is this the attempt to destroy culture. And, um, and yet, because of the memory, that they were not able to destroy the memory, oral abilities of passing down culture, much of it has been maintained. But think of it, the destruction of slavery upon a nation of people, and to see some of the results that are going on. Uh, their value systems and behavior, uh, things that have really taken, taken a toll, as we discussed yesterday, on teenagers. 
in the city, in the black culture. So culture is a, is a context for where, and then it tells you your direction of where you're going, what are your value systems, um, uh, how are things going to end up in your life, and so forth. 